0: Galatians chapter two, verses one through 10. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles to them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. They gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me. That we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing that I was eager to do. Amen. You may be
1: seated. I don't know if any of you know this date, September 22nd, 1862. On that date, President Abraham Lincoln declared what today is known as the Emancipation Proclamation. And on it, it stated that as of January 1st, 1863, all slaves in Confederate states, quote, shall be then, thenceforward and forever free, unquote. So when Abraham Lincoln announced this proclamation, you might wonder, were the slaves free? Did they leave the plantations at that point and just run away and shout for joy, jubilation, parties? The answer to that question is actually no. You know, that that was the middle of the American Civil War. It would take another two years for the war to end. But even after that point, the slaves slowly started trickling away from their plantations. And you might wonder then, when they started leaving the plantations, were they free? If you were to ask black Americans, African Americans today, if they were free in 1864 to the civil rights era in the 1960s, they would say absolutely not. They were not free. In fact, Many of you know Martin Luther King's famous speech. He ended it with these famous words, free at last, free at last, thank God almighty, we are free at last. But you have to wonder, wait a second. I thought black Americans were free with Abraham Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation and the 13th Amendment. If you, again, talk to black Americans, they will say they were absolutely not free. Here's the thing, though. If you were to talk to someone who is black today in America, they would still argue that they are not free at last, free at last. That's the challenge with freedom from the world's perspective is that freedom is elusive. It's not always so fixed as we would imagine. Freedom seems to come and go. One can experience freedom but then go back to enslavement. Peter describes it this way. Every dog goes back to its vomit. That you can be free of illness, free of mental hardship, emotional challenge, physical ailment, but then maybe a few years later, it suddenly comes back. Maybe you're, you feel free from sin and its entanglements in the moment. But only a few months later, it seems to come back. When African slaves worked on the plantations, they sang an old Negro spiritual, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. Now, I don't know if any of you know this song. I remember even as a young child singing that song with hand motions. And it says, swing low, sweet chariot, coming forth to carry me home. And so these African slaves would be laboring in the cotton fields of the South. And as they'd be picking cotton and swinging their pickaxes, and they'd be singing that because for them, freedom was going to be found in a place that is not just a home in Africa. They, ultimately, they didn't go back to Africa outside of the Liberians. But they were longing for an eternal home where they would finally find freedom. And in that, they had a right understanding of freedom, perhaps much more than we do. That's the thing about facing real hardship is that you begin to understand that freedom is not found once you gain money, popularity, or fame, or fortune. Freedom is ultimately found. In Christ. And freedom is ultimately experienced, forever freedom, in our eternal home, which is what the slaves sang about. Which is also what Paul speaks of in this chapter, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. He speaks of this freedom, this fight for freedom, finding it in his eternal home that is only possible when we believe in this true gospel. And so with this, I'd like to describe it by seeing how Paul lays it out for us in this chapter when he describes it first as gospel explanation in verses 1 through 2, second is gospel enslavement in verses 3 to 6, and then third is gospel emancipation in verses 7 through 10. So first, let's look at this gospel explanation in verses 1 through 2. Thus far in chapter 1, he's gone to great lengths to explain that the gospel that he had preached, the true gospel, the gospel of grace, is not something that he picked up from Paul or James or uh, from any of the other apostles. It's not something that he gained from time in Jerusalem. And so he mentions his visit to Jerusalem 11 years after those initial three years, that he didn't go back to Jerusalem. So it's not as though he figured it out somewhere along the way in Jerusalem. He stayed away from Jerusalem. He didn't hear the gospel from other apostles. And then we know that he was only with Peter for 15 days, just to underscore this point. So really, Paul is making this big emphasis on this idea, and he's emphasizing it again and again, that he didn't get this gospel from people. It comes directly from Christ. And while he knew that the gospel fully is from Jesus and Jesus alone, he also knew that these false teachers were making real impact in the church, far-reaching impact. And notice in verse 2, he says, In order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain, because his concern was this, that his earlier teaching on the gospel is now being undermined. And the, eventually, that would cause the church to lose its foundation. And the foundation is the gospel of grace. So much was at stake at this point for not just Paul, but really for the church, for Christianity as we know it today. And you have to really understand, the gospel that Paul taught was in great danger. For Paul, the gospel was truly good news because it wasn't our righteous deeds that makes us acceptable to God. In fact, righteous deeds, no matter how righteous they appear, no matter how good they seem, on their own, they always fall short to bring forth salvation. Even when we do a righteous deed, you might notice that it can quickly spiral to unrighteousness. If you have ever taken this commitment to say, I'm not going to be angry when I speak to so and so, my loved one, my wife, my husband, my child, and you, you, you go before the Lord and you say, Lord, help me not to be frustrated. Help me not to be angry. Instead, help me to speak the truth with grace and kindness. And so you go to that person, and you say, you know, child, wife, husband, uh, friend can I share with you some of my concerns? And they respond to you sinfully, maybe even, angrily. Or they just reject you, and they refuse to hear you. Try again then responding kindly, graciously. And then they reject you again. And then what is your response like? Maybe it's, I'll give you three shots, but don't press me for four. You know, It's hard. When when even when you are trying to be gracious, which sometimes goes in with mixed motives, but let's say you can really be fully, fully gracious and earnest, sincere, but that person whom you're responding to is not receiving it, is rejecting you, responding to you with anger and frustration, then the the heart just wells up. That sense of humility and brokenness starts fading away, and in it comes forth our self-righteousness it is so hard to escape because on its face the law cannot save us it never changes a heart it shows us our need for Christ but it never shows us uh, it never saves us it never transforms us so Paul has gone to great lengths to say all of this in chapter 1 and he will move forward in and describing what this looks like in chapter 2 and onward. But know this, that gospel is in danger. And it was in danger in Paul's day, and it is still in danger today. And it's also in danger in our own hearts, because our default nature and character is always to press the law to promote change, because it is so easy to do so. And the results, oftentimes, at least behaviorally, are quick but we know the law does not change the heart. A second danger that Paul knows is on the horizon is disunity within the church, which is why this part of the letter is there because Paul is writing about the church in Jerusalem, and the church in Jerusalem really was the center place by which the gospel first started. In Acts 1.8, we are told, Jesus says, and this gospel will be preached as a testimony from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth. So Jerusalem has a special place in its presentation and in its church leadership of the gospel. Now, if the church in Jerusalem saw that, well, in order to be a Christian, you need to believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior, and plus you need to follow the law, Mosaic law. And Paul here then was preaching to Gentiles and saying, no, you don't need to follow the law. You only need to follow Christ and Christ alone. And if they held separate disparate views, there would be no Christianity today. We would not be here at all. The gospel would have been destroyed because that type of foundational disunity at this really critical juncture of the church would have split apart the church, and it would have created and wreaked havoc on the church. There would be no gospel today. So what Paul is doing is, He's saying the church in Jerusalem, the church that I'm preaching, the gospel I'm preaching to the Gentiles, we all agree this is the gospel. Um, Author and biblical commentator John Stott, he puts it this way. It was one thing for the Jerusalem leaders to give their approval to the conversion of the Gentiles, but could they approve of commitment to the Messiah without inclusion in Judaism? Was their vision big enough to see the gospel of Christ not as a reform movement within Judaism, but as good news for the whole world and the Church of Christ as the international family of God? Praise God, the church at this point had a big enough vision. The gospel was not a reform movement of Jews. So we're not Jews who are subsets Christians but generally we're Jewish Christians. No, we are Christians and Jews by trusting in Christ, just like Gentiles, such as most of us, have the opportunity to be in Christ together as one family. This is what Paul is fighting for in his letter to the Galatians. And this is exactly the opposite of what the false teachers, the Christian, so-called Christian Jewish teachers who are trying to implement the law into the gospel what they were proposing. Paul describes that type of life, the implementation of other things connected to the gospel as gospel enslavement in verses 3 to 5. Because we have to realize that the gospel outside of having the freedom apart from anything else leads to enslavement. And he gives as a test case this one disciple that he had, his name was Titus, in verses 3 to 6. Titus, according to Titus 1-4, he was a Gentile convert. Paul brought him to Jerusalem. Together they ministered. He would eventually later become a, a, the pastor and the leading uh, pastor of Crete, the land of Crete. And So when Paul brings Titus to Jerusalem, What he decides to do is not circumcise him, which would have been an affront to any Jew. But even Jewish Christians had a hard time with this because they had the idea that, well, if you really want to be a true Christian, if you really want to be a faithful believer of Christ, then shouldn't you obey Mosaic law? And all males who turn to Christ and are trying to follow him should be circumcised. Paul is saying no. In fact, if you do that, you actually undermine the gospel. You turn it away. The problem for Paul is that there were those who were saying that Gentile Christians must be circumcised. Now, there's a big difference. Some decided to be circumcised, like like Timothy, who was a Gentile. But he volunteered it so that, just like Paul, he could be all things to all people so that he might save some. Very much the heart of Hudson Taylor, when he goes into China and as a Westerner with Western dress. And he's trying to reach Chinese in the 1800s. And so as Hudson Taylor goes, he dresses in the native garb of those whom he's presenting the gospel to and taking on their cultures and their customs. Why? Because he wants no impediment to the gospel that he's preaching. But he volunteered that of his own heart. And so what Paul is saying here is that you have to be willing to recognize that there is a voluntary heart sometimes for someone to willingly do this to fit into the customs and culture of the land, but it is not required of that person to fit in because in order to be a Christian, you have to be circumcised. That's not what Paul is saying. And... You might be thinking, well, we're not Jews. You know, we're not dealing with this issue of circumcision. And, uh, you know, so why does this matter for us today? You have to understand this circumcision was a symbol of a cultural religious identity for Jews. And that cultural religious identity showed that they were God's chosen people. The same idea can be transferred into our context when we believe that there is something of the law that measures our faith. It's the idea that to be a Christian was to be saved, and that is measured by your keeping of the law. And there are so many ways that we Christians, add works, measure our faith by the keeping of a law. Practically speaking, there are many Judaizing Christians today, many who believe that Jesus plus something makes you a true Christian, that there's this different class of Christian. There is the Christian, and then there is the higher Christian of someone who believes in Jesus, yes, but also keeps the law in certain ways. You might have... Heard this yourself, maybe been tempted to do this on your own. Maybe uh, one day one of your kids will say, "Mom, Dad, I want to be a missionary. I want to serve the Lord overseas. And your first instinct is, but how are you going to make money? You know why don't you first go to med school, become a doctor, and then go and be a missionary? Why don't you first be an engineer? And then go be a pastor after because you've done it all. See, I know sounds familiar maybe to some of you. That heart is a follow Jesus, but you know, you don't have to give up all these things. There, that mentality of the, the, what can I, like, how much can I get away with to be a Christian? What's the minimal amount I need to do to be a Christian is a Judaizing heart. It's a heart that believes that the law, by following and obeying a certain path, is what actually makes us a believer of Christ. That it's not about Christ alone. His finished work, his perfect life lived, the resurrection, the cross, all of that alone and his grace in my life is what calls me to himself. It's what calls me. That's who I am as a Christian. Everything else is but a fruit, an effect of faith, but it is not faith itself. And so every time we think that, well, actually, if you really want to be a good Christian, you have to follow biblical parenting methods. You have to have this type of Christian dating. You have to make sure that you don't drink alcohol. Or if you do drink it, drink it a certain amount. You smoke pot or don't smoke pot. You, there is a, a whole litany. And if we were to try to come up with a list of all the different things that you think a good Christian does or doesn't do, we would find that eventually it would be hard to keep that perfectly, at least. You can imagine the conundrum that Titus brought to the church. He was ethnically different from others. But he loved Jesus. He lived for his glory. He wanted to serve him as a pastor. But he was uncircumcised. And for that, in a Jewish context, he would have definitely brought in scorn because he wasn't, quote, like us. According to verse 4, there were false brothers who were trying to rob the church of freedom. They were trying to enslave the church because that's what Jesus plus the gospel is it is enslavement they're spying they're trying to rob you know that there is a serious danger that happens and it happens from loved ones it happens from authors from the world from our own heart the Jesus plus gospel that's an enslavement It keeps us more fixed on outward behaviors than the work of Christ alone. And it is a creep. It's a slow creep. It just slowly tugs at your heart. As we saw last week, these Judaizers, they looked godly. But their attempts to get the church to follow God's law to be saved and to say, what's so wrong with that? What's so wrong with following the law? God actually gave the law, Paul, who looked the part, remember, of the violent, insolent, persecutor of the church. It's so startling that this man who was so high up in the Jewish law tradition ended up being the greatest advocate of Christian freedom. Think about it this way. The reason why the law robs you of the freedom that you have in Christ is that inherent is the, in the law is to get the law right talk to a lawyer, you'll see what that means. It is the law, if it is the law that says that you need to be saved, then you better make sure you understand the law. But when you talk to a lawyer, you will find that uh, the better you try to abide by the law, the more you try to by, by, uh, abide by it, the more you see the law to explain laws of exceptions to that law and corollaries, you know, it has all these tentacles. It makes sense why the Pharisees wrote up books, many, many books that interpreted the Mosaic law. So if you have the Bible and the first five books of the Bible, that's Moses' law the Pharisees said, well, to really understand the law, you have to actually come up with more laws to understand the law. And they came up with the Talmud and and all these, the Targums and all these different traditions. And so suddenly the books of the law started growing and growing. Again, just go to any lawyer's library. I mean, you see tons of books on the law. The reason is because you have to figure out every point of the law to be kept and all of its exceptions, all of its corollaries. So if Moses says, wash your hands as ceremonial ritual cleansing, the Pharisees started thinking, well, how much water do we need to actually get cleansing? And so they would describe all the different types of water that was to be used and how much water to be used. Then they started asking, well, how high do you need to wash your hands up in order to be truly ritually cleansed? And so they started having a law that said, well, the water needs to go up to this point and it can't drip down to here. And if it does drip down, then you're not... Really washing your hands ceremonial. And then they said, well, if you really wanted washing your hands of ceremonial cleansing, how long does it take for the hands to be considered clean in order to be washed? So if it's, say, well, I think maybe one minute might be, let's, let's have about five minutes of cleansing, maybe five minutes and 30 seconds. And so all the different aspects of figuring out how the law is to be kept started piling on and then all the books. See, the challenge with the gospel plus this is that the plus becomes infinite plus. And Jesus plus infinite laws equal misery and burden. And so anyone who tries to follow Jesus by doing certain things and making that your ultimate gospel If you look at them, they're usually tired, joyless, burdened. Imagine if you're sharing the gospel with someone. And this gospel is so freeing for this person's soul. And then you tell them, hey, you know what, though? If you really want to believe this gospel, you need to stop cursing, stop your smoking pot, you have to go to church every Sunday, stop living with your girlfriend, stop playing cards, stop going to nightclubs, etc. and et cetera. Now, you're probably listening to that list and thinking, well, shouldn't they be stopping all those things? Isn't that, those are good things, isn't it? But none of those things saves a person. You can stop smoking pot and still not worship Christ. You can stop living with your girlfriend and still not worship Christ, if we're focusing on the behavioral patterns and not seeing that actually what matters the most is a transformed heart, then we're going to miss out on what God is doing in that person's life. It will be a false gospel that actually they'll believe. They always do. Once you start gearing up towards trying to fix and change behavior, you will never see that person truly trust in Jesus, and they will live a life of burden and misery. As a Christian, no, I really believe that when you trust in Christ and see the life transformed, all those other things will turn. They will come, maybe over time. And so if you... Share the gospel of Christ, and they suddenly someone comes to church and says, I believe in Jesus. They're baptized, and then they go out and you hear them swearing. You're not, you're not thinking, you're not blown away and thinking, Oh my, I can't believe they did that. I don't think they're a Christian anymore. It takes time. The work of sanctification and the gospel of grace requires patience on believers. Grace, we've said this time and time again if you want to see quick results, go law. I can enforce change on my family, my children, on the church if I say, hey, everyone in our church leadership must uh, must be at this prayer meeting, and if you're not, then you will be disciplined. There will be some, some will say, I'm leaving the church. <laughs> some will say, "I w- I will be there because I'm so afraid of being disciplined, and they can be there but eventually, they'll grow tired of being there. And eventually, they'll grumble and be angered and be irritable and frustrated. But if I can present the gospel of Christ and say, Jesus has done this for you. He has given you everything. There is, he has not withheld. Our Father has not withheld his own son, but graciously given up him to you. So would you consider coming and joining us in prayer together? Now, they might not come. But if they come, they will come because they want to come because of what Christ has done. And when that happens, we see transformation. But that transformation is slow. It's not quick. It takes time and patience and waiting and trusting. It is the prodigal father's heart of that waiting heart and saying, I release you and I wait. But when they come, they will come to their senses and they'll say, I'm coming home. This is what Paul is fighting for. He's fighting for a church that truly believes that Christ's work is what is transformative, not the law. And when we get that, only then will there be gospel emancipation. Only then will we be freed, according to verses 7 through 10. When they saw that. Paul writes, on the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the, uncir- to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. For Paul, this gospel emancipation is what Peter affirmed, James affirmed, John affirmed, Barnabas affirmed. There was nothing to be added to the gospel. Christ alone is sufficient. Everything else is a fruit of the gospel. And to try to to add anything to the gospel is to not just ignore the gospel, but to actually believe in a different gospel. And that destroys unity. We cannot be united with a different gospel. Our unity is never on anything else, nothing social, nothing ethnic, nothing economic. Nothing, life stage, our unity is not rooted on that, but Christ and Christ alone. Anything less than that leads to ultimate disunity. And I've been here for over 20 years. I've seen many people come and go. We've tried many things to bring forth unity in all sorts of different ways from the earliest of stages. And what remains constant is that there truly is only one unity. And it is in Christ alone. Everything else is shallow and fleeting. Perfectionism and legalism and judgmentalism, it corrodes our souls. I love the way Michael Horton, theologian Michael Horton, puts it. He says, the default setting of the human heart is the religion of self-salvation. Grace is primarily seen by evangelicals as divine assistance for the process of moral transformation rather than as a one-sided divine rescue. And that is so wrong when we think that grace is God just sort of supplying 20% of our efforts. He's sort of helping us along. No, it is divine rescue. That's it. When you think grace, you think, God, you've done it all. You have done everything. For Paul, the gospel is the historical reality that God rescued us through his son. And he credits us with Christ's righteousness so that we can be free to be the person that God has created us to be. And so as Paul writes, as we'll see later in Galatians 4, 4 through 7, we are no longer slaves but a son. And since we're sons, we're heirs. Unlike lincoln's emancipation proclamation which really freed no one ultimately because we're experiencing some of the struggles of that lack of freedom today there's only one true freedom in this world and that is christ and christ alone and that's good news and that good news according to verse 10 should cause us to remember the poor that's a very interesting way to end this whole thing you know don't you think you know out of all of that why does he end with, remember the poor? Because in the end, remembering the poor helps us to remember we are poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I have found this, and we've, we've mentioned this time and time again. For those of us who have had the privilege of going to Africa, you hear it from George, hearing about what, happened, what happens with City Impact. Why do we do these things? Is it just to be humanitarian? Absolutely not. To me, every time we have opportunities to reach and care for the poor, it's to remember our own poverty, to remember that we, are, we were once slaves. We were impoverished. We were orphans. But now we're sons. Now we're daughters. Every time we have opportunities to give a bag to the homeless, it is not to do our good duty. It gives us this opportunity to say, Lord, That man, that woman who was homeless there and strung up on drugs, I am that person spiritually apart from Christ. And every time I give this bag, I remember who I am. I've been saved. I've been rescued by grace alone. There is nothing else that makes me better than that person. So when I go and sit in Africa in a hut, and I'm looking at a widow who is caring for a grandmother who's caring for all these children, I sit there and I think, Lord, this woman is teaching me about Christ, teaching me about what Jesus you have done because I am that orphan sitting there being rescued. So Paul ends this verse, ends this section by saying, it is grace upon grace. Remember the poor that will help you to remember yourself. Remember you. I want to close with Martin Luther's hymn, this description of freedom and a mighty fortress is our God. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth, the gospel truth, abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Because the truth is real, the gospel is true, we can let goods and sometimes even family members can let them go and even our own life we can let it go god's truth abideth still his kingdom is forever let's pray father we acknowledge together that we are a people who apart from christ fall short of your glory. But I give you thanks that you rescued us, not because of righteous deeds we have done, but because of your great mercy. You didn't just simply assist us with grace. You saved us from the pit. There is no homeless person. There is no child in Africa that is more impoverished physically than we were spiritually. So may we not look with disdain and disgust at those who are poor physically and spiritually, but instead may we remember that we are like them. Help us to let goods and kindred go and this mortal life also. Even if our bodies are killed, your truth, it abides forever. The good news of Jesus Christ, the righteousness that was won at the cross, the rejection that you face, the mockery, the spitting, the jeering, the laughter, the thorns, the pierced side, the long, treacherous road on the road to Gal- Golgotha, That was for us, so that we would not be left abandoned, alone. Instead, so that we would be free. I pray that we would remember that, Lord, this week, this time, especially in this season. We worship you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.